This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Has anyone ever confided in you, I'm deconstructing? Maybe you don't know the phrase, but you surely know the phenomenon. Yet another social media post announces departure from the Christian faith. The cause could be just about anything. It could be sex or race or politics or social justice, science, hell, or all of the above. Uh, For many today, Christianity is becoming implausible, even impossible to believe. It might be tempting to leave the church in order to find answers, but the new book, Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church, published by the Gospel Coalition, argues that church should be the best place to deal with doubts, because deconstructing need not end in unbelief. In fact, deconstructing can be the road toward reconstructing, building up a more mature, robust faith that grapples honestly with the deepest questions of life. For more on this, I'm joined by three of the contributors to this book, Karen Swallow-Pryor, J.Y. Kim, and Derek Rishmaui. Thanks all for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thanks for having us on. Well, Derek, let's just start with you. Not every listener is going to understand deconstruction. They don't know where that comes from. Uh, they may not have never heard that term before. Just tell us, what is deconstruction? <laughs> Uh, so I get the easy one to start. Um, yeah, right off the bat. Yeah, so I'll just—I guess I'll clarify right off the bat that it's—it's it's not necessarily if you know the term from literary theory and philosophy with Jacques Derrida and the late 20th century developments. It's not that. It's not that term. Although you might you might trace a lineage of like how those things are connected, but most people are just kind of using that term in a loose sense. Uh, in relation to the idea of construction or reconstruction. Like, and, and when they use it in relation to, to faith, um, it, it's helpful to think about Christianity as it's often handed to us as a package, as a, a set of beliefs and a culture and practices that are all bundled together. And what deconstruction seems to, def- seems to, to be used as is, is a process for uh, thinking through, kind of taking it apart uh, bit by bit and examining it. And so for some folks, there's, there's no re, there's no one phenomenon of deconstructing, right? So somebody tells you that phrase, you don't automatically know what they mean. Um, so there's a range, right? So for some folks, you can think of it as sort of a resituating process where folks are learning to take what we might say, you know, the doctrines of the faith, the, the apostles creed, the Nicene creed and resituate them, uh, within a, a different framework of, you know, spirituality or political engagement or, uh, ecclesial situation, right? It, it's not necessarily, you know, uh, Christianity is the creed and like, uh, well, <laughs> the creed might be new to you, but like quiet times and certain emotionalism in, in, 
in worship or whatever it is, it could be that. And you're pulling those things apart and you're disconnecting that from like your Republican voting patterns for the last 20 years or something like that. So for some folks, it's like a resituating. They're, they're, they're still hanging on to their faith. They still believe basic core things that they did before, but they're, but they're reorganizing the way that looks. For some folks, it's a little bit more radical and you might call it like a rethinking. So some folks are not just kind of resituating kind of cultural uh, encasing, uh, but actually like questioning fundamental doctrines. So w- what does it mean that Christ, you know, died for our sins? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets? Like, what do I think about scripture? Uh, what do I think about hell? Uh, are, are these things um, necessary to Christianity. So, a you know, hundred years ago, Adolf Harnack wrote a book called "What Is the Essence of Christianity," and he kind of distinguished the the uh, the kernel from the husk. And so, a lot of people are trying to figure out the you know what's the kernel and what's the husk, and and they're not just doing that at the cultural trapping level; they're doing it at the doctrinal level, right? So, for some people, it's that, and then for some people, it goes a little bit more radically and just thinking like, can I can I believe the thing at all? Do I, do I need this thing? Is it so toxic through and through, uh, toxic to my faith, to, to my pursuit of justice, to, uh, my own story of trauma and hurt that like the whole thing needs to be tossed. And so when somebody says that, I I think the first thing I'd say is like, don't necessarily assume, you know, what they're talking about. People are particular and they, and they use these terms in particularized ways, even though what it generally signals is some reevaluation uh, of the package that they've been handed for one reason or another. And, and it's a process of, of kind of going through what's left, what they can hold on to or not. Am I wrong to think that this sounds somewhat familiar to the emerging church of 20 years ago? I mean, for me, this is kind of a, it's kind of a continuation. Yeah. 20 years down the line, it's not just familiar. It's, it's actually, I think there's a lineage from, you know, emerging stuff to what was kind of progressive evangelicalism to, and, and the thing, but I will say that I don't want to narrow the conversation to just the evangelical church. This is, this is going on far beyond it. And, and if you just look at what the thing is, I mean, I mean, I mentioned Harnack, but, but rethinking the faith and, you know, kind of sifting kernel from Hus, sifting culture from, from that's been going on for a long time. And what we're, we're, we're looking at is a, is a kind of a contemporary, super online phenomenon uh, of this kind of old uh, old thing that's been happening for a long time, at least as, as far as I can discern, but anybody else pitch in and correct? Well, Karen, you've been working with students for a number of years, and what would you say is the most common reason you see for young people when they say they're deconstructing? What would you say is the most common reason? Yeah, I mean, I there are a couple of common reasons I think I can boil it down to um, pick up first on what Derek was talking about. Um, Of course, my context is having taught for over two decades in a conservative evangelical environment. So the young people that I'm working with come from a particular kind of um, subset of Christianity. And I think for them, for many of them, what I've seen is what Derek talked about primarily in that category one of kind of um, looking at how the doctrines of the faith have been packaged in cultural terms, political terms, um, even just sort of the practices, like if you are a good Christian, you will have a quiet time every day, or you will, you know, do do this or do that. These these things that are, are, are very tied to a particular cultural moment. I've seen a lot of students 
figure out whether or not that those things, those cultural markers of evangelical faith are really intrinsic to the Christian faith itself. And, and that's actually been, that's been a stumbling block for some of my students, especially when I, I get so many students who come from very conservative backgrounds and they come to college like they're on fire for Jesus and they think that the strength of their faith is measured by the minutes they put into their quiet time or the, the clothes that they wear and so forth. And later figuring out that that is not the essence of the faith has been bewildering for a number of them. But beyond that, that that's not the most serious deconstruction that I'm seeing, although that certainly is is one and it can, it can lead down a wrong path. But primarily, I see the most serious kind of deconstruction taking place because of well, because of this topic I wrote about in this book, and that's anti-intellectualism. I'm seeing students, whether it's, you know, English majors that I that I work with a lot or students coming from other majors in my general education classes who experience Christians refusing to answer questions or being afraid to challenge ideas. And not not we're not talking about the tenets of the faith. We're talking about other things like, you know, scientific discoveries or or good literature or just all kinds of uh, of questions related to the life of the mind that they don't feel welcome to ask or that they actually feel uh, they have been discouraged from engaging in. And uh, so I, I see a lot of students who are turned off by the anti-intellectualism. And then when they approach matters of faith, it becomes even, even worse. And if, if they find one thing that contradicts what they've been taught, then it can lead to a dismantling of the entire faith. You do a great job of explaining there, Karen, that it would be a mistake for somebody to assume that our book or this this book is about picking on or trying to embarrass or trying to, you know, point out the flaws of all these young people. Really, it's more of an encouragement to churches to be safe places for young people to be able to work these things out, uh, to equip them as ministers, as leaders, as parents to be able to to respond when this is happening so that people young people don't feel as though they have to leave the church to find answers to questions and that i think really is more of the you know expected you know, readership of this book in a lot of different ways uh, jay let's turn to you now derek said something i think was very noteworthy in his first answer he talked about how this is a super online phenomenon and certainly that would square with my experience as well. And it's hard to imagine the spread of deconstruction this way without the internet. But I'm wondering, thinking positively here, what are some practices that you might commend for a healthy discernment for people who are looking for answers, looking to, to find, um, you know, to process their questions, given just such a plethora of podcasts, TikTok videos, all kinds of How's somebody supposed to sift through all that? Yeah, I mean, you know, Derek also mentioned that deconstruction is also not exclusive to the cultural moment we we find ourselves in now, meaning deconstruction was happening in various forms long before the internet. I think what has happened with the internet, though, the digital age has done two things. One, it has affected the shallowness of deconstruction. And it has certainly affected the speed or the rate in which it spreads, essentially, because of the, the digital devices at, at our disposal. So, yeah, that's a great question. You know, what are some sort of healthy ways we can engage? The, the reality is digital technology is here and it's here to stay. And there's actually a lot of good that comes about 
from it. And so we don't want to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. But it does remind me quite a bit of like if you, you know, if you go on the internet and you research uh, or you just kind of Google advertisements for cigarettes in the mid 20th century, you'll see all these ads for like camel cigarettes. And there's doctors, you know, doctors recommend camel cigarettes, the healthiest, you know, is almost coming across like this is actually good for you. And here we are, you know, less than a century later, and it's laughable. And I do wonder sometimes if we're going to look back at the rise of the internet and ask those questions. Now, now it's certainly not the same. I mean, cigarettes, there's just very little positive benefit. While with the internet, there, there are some real benefits. But I just I don't know that we're aware of its dangers in the sort of visceral ways that we need to be aware of them, meaning uh, I think we sort of leverage these tools at our disposal fairly recklessly because they're new to us and, and we're not yet fully aware of, of what it's doing to us. So uh, the first thing I would say at a high level is we, we have to begin thinking about social media in particular, but just the internet and digital technology as a whole as not simply being tools for information, but actually tools for formation. So our usage of these digital tools don't just inform us, they form us, you know, and unform us and deform us in many ways. Um, so there, there's so much to be said here. I mean, one thing I would cite is, is our, our mutual friend, Brett McCracken, and um, he's a contributor to this book, book as well. And he's got a new book out uh, on something that he's been working on for several years, the wisdom pyramid, pyramid that I've found so immensely helpful where he's sort of, you know, taking the, the classic food pyramid and, and applying it to our discipleship to Jesus, essentially saying, you know, at the base of the pyramid is scripture, is the Bible. That's where we go to first. Uh, and then there's the church. And then there's, you know, God's glory uh, revealed to us through beauty and nature and art. And then there are books. And then sort of, you know, almost in the dessert category of the pyramid would be the internet and, and social media. So that's one practical way of looking at it. How do you frame your worldview and the way you think about um, who God is and what he's up to in the world? For many of us, I think a healthy step would be to invert what is normative, which is to wake up and open up our Twitter feed or you know some other social media feed and, and try to get our information there rather to, to, to plunge ourselves into the depths of scripture, to commit to a church community, uh, to find God beyond that through um, long format reading and the beauty of the world around us. And then to see the internet and social media as sort of small peripheral supplemental guides. Um, another thing I would say that's been really helpful for me is, is from Andy Crouch. Um, he talks about using, uh, treating your smartphone like you would a young child, meaning um, you put the phone to bed before you go to bed and you wake up before the phone wakes up. You know, I've got two young children and I guarantee you if I went to bed, if my wife and I went to bed before they went to bed, it would be disaster, you know? And so it is with smartphones, I think, to give ourselves that sort of bandwidth and that space uh, to clear our heads and, and our hearts um, so it's not over inundated with uh, social media and the like. Oh, man, I've noticed those formative effects of the, of the smartphone, of social media in particular. I've just noticed the way Twitter accelerates life. I mean, it just makes things move so quickly or the sense that things are moving so quickly. It just gives a sense that things are happening 
It becomes its own little self-enclosed world or perspective on everything. It's very um, engrossing, but also distorting in that as well. And it has that formative effect. And Derek, I don't see you spending nearly as much time on Twitter as I used to uh, there. I don't know what kind of decisions you made there. I'm, I'm about to have a kid and I just, I, I seem to lower the anxiety levels right now and just reckon with myself, I think to some degree. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm off right now. I mean, I've, I've had to make similar decisions just in terms of what you pointed out there, anxiety levels when life is moving at that pace I mean, there there is a sense sometimes I get with the deconstructing process of a loss of control. Just almost feels like things are spinning, and I don't don't know how to find my my place. I I had a friend of mine liken it to to surfing when a big wave comes and it just dumps you, and you don't know up from down or left from right anymore. You don't know if you're going to bash your head on a rock or if you're going to just sort of get you know guided onto the seashore. You just don't know. And that it's a it's a very scary kind of experience. And I wonder, Derek, if one way that people grab on to find something stable is to buy into some of the common deconstruction templates that we see out there, because it doesn't really appear that every story is different. It appears that there's even kind of a so I mean, also depends on your medium, uh, because there seems to be an Instagram type of deconstruction that we see in that template. So, I mean, how do you, how do you see that kind of um, performative deconstruction affecting this phenomenon? You know, I think you're right to say that there's not just one, one template. There are, there are some recognizable templates out there for people telling their stories of uh, coming to a deconstructing point or how they did it. And uh, there's probably a couple different reasons for that. One is just uh, because a lot of people are and we have to reckon with this is a lot of people are having the same experiences in our churches. So if a lot of people keep saying the same thing, then um, people need to reckon with the fact that like, okay, well, maybe our churches aren't asking these questions properly. Maybe we're not dealing with our politics um, properly. Maybe we're not dealing with abuse properly. Maybe we're not. And so like a lot of churches have to like reckon and, and, and ask hard questions of themselves. So, so if you keep hearing themes, pay, pay, pay attention if you're a pastor or a parent, or whatever. The other thing that's not mutually exclusive, you've kind of already gotten that, is that stories shape our experiences and we don't just generate them out of nowhere, right? And uh, I, I think about a, uh, an example analogy for my health. So I've had chronic pain issues for the last 10 years. And one thing I've noticed uh, over times as I've tried to figure out what's going on with me, my discomfort was always real. I mean, like painfully, real, like can't walk sometimes real. And over the years though, my, my explanation for what was wrong with me would shift over time as I either went to a different doctor or, you know, different WebMD site or different whatever. And, and I remember even one time where they were testing me for a neuromuscular disease and, uh, the doctor kind of gave me this, this possible, um, diagnosis. And I, I was looking at the diagnosis and it matched some of my symptoms. But it didn't seem to initially match others. But as I started to like narrate my own experience back over the last five, six years in my head, I actually found myself retrofitting some of my experiences to fit the diagnosis because I wanted, I wanted an answer for my pain and my pain was real. And it turned out the diagnosis was wrong and, and there were, you know, we've moved on since then, but, but uh, I'm not saying that's what everybody is doing, but I, I think there is a certain reach for an explanation when we're when we're in disorienting times, when we are socially dislocated, and it doesn't surprise me. Last year, last year has been 
just massively dislocating for people. We're in the middle of a pandemic, a shutdown. Things are out of whack. People's relationships are in critical states. They're they haven't been in church for six, seven months. Often uh, they're hyper online. Uh, the world's going to end in a lot of ways. Feeling of things, and so everything is everything is dislocated. That's not that's not driving all of it, but that can't be underestimated as a thing. And so oftentimes we we reach for narratives that are on offer. And I, there's a there's a philosopher I kind of cite in the in the chapter I wrote. Um, Jason Blakely he he had a he's got a little book called We Constructed Reality. He talks about the way a double hermeneutic effect uh, takes place where a sociologist will like put forward uh, an explanation for human behavior in some 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 area. So 1950s they uh, economists talked about the rational consumer as a way of describing uh, purchasing behavior. And over time, as that idea filtered its way out into the culture, people actually started to describe their own behavior increasingly in ways that fit the model that had been proposed. So it was actually like a diagnosis. It's almost like a Schrodinger's cat where observing it um, actually changes whether it's there or not or whatever. But there's a sense in which proposing the diagnosis actually begins to create a cultural effect and becomes a self-fulfilling interpretive grid. You see one Instagram story that looks a certain way. It creates a, a, a an intensive effect where more and more people start to interpret their experiences, their painful experiences and discomfort along that same grid. And then it just has a multiplier effect. And so I think that's not all of it. Right. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, you're just you're just following some cultural trend necessarily if you're experiencing these things. But we have to wrestle with the fact that other people's stories shape our own understandings of our own, um, sometimes for good, sometimes uh, for ill. Sometimes it can be distorting. And so just wrestling with that, why they're these templates, they, they become memes. Right. And memes spread. So so that's that's, I think, part of that. Yeah, I mean, I love I love the perspective Derek's bringing here because I think it's so pastoral of helping to understand not only the specifics of each person, but also how we're all caught up in bigger narratives. And one of the bigger narratives we find is that churches are not a safe place to be able to deal with these things. So people can retrofit to say, right, there was that one time when this youth pastor said this, or when somebody pastor said this, or something like that. Uh, JF's Somebody asked, would you say your church is a safe place to doubt? I mean, I'm biased, so I would say yes. <laughs> but I, I I have reason for that. Yeah, I mean, uh, what Derek said, I think is spot on that, you know, memeology is a, is a real thing. It's a field of study right now in uh, fascinating ways because it shapes um, cultural narratives, which then have the power to shape our own own personal narratives and then the waters get very murky in terms of trying to figure out what is the anchor you know what what is like the truest story uh upon which we can sort of build a life and a worldview and all those sorts of things so I, I, when it comes to our church um and we're not unique in this i think you know many churches take this approach particularly in the digital age uh the reason i say i do think we're, we're a safe place to doubt is because we, we've been trying really hard, especially in recent years, to promote slow and steady. You know, we've been inviting people to slow down from the pace at which all of the rest of their lives seem to move, uh, much of it propagated by um, social media. We talked about it earlier, just this urgency, like you said, Colin, that you feel like you're wrapped up in this sort of speed 
um, that you didn't, it was a pace you did not set. It's a pace that's been set for you uh, by social media and the digital age. And so we've been trying to create really a transcendent space, like come slow down. Um, the goal is not for you to come and sit through a hour and 15 long, you know, worship service and then have all the answers. The goal is for you to commit to a particular community and for us together um, to embrace the slow and steady journey of growth and learning and transformation into the image of the risen Christ. And so we try to push away as much as possible sort of quick hit microwavable answers, even though often that's what people in terms of their felt needs, that's what people are are coming for. Uh, we don't say the answers don't exist. We simply say it's like a really good gumbo <laughs> and it's going to take hours and hours on the fire for us to be able to pull out all the flavors in such a way that it's enriching and um, transformative in a meaningful way rather than popping it in the microwave for 30 seconds and there you go. It, at least it's hot, you know, that sort of thing. And um, so that's that's been a big big part of it too. And, and I think the challenge for us, as has been the case for probably most churches that we face in that invitation is just the incredible rise of individualism. You know, in, in the West, I mean, this has been going on for a long time. It, it predates the Internet age by a lot, but still uh, the Internet age has sped it up. You know, that individualism now is just it is the default worldview of most people that everything about their life experiences has to be catered to them. And that's just, the, you know, my best understanding of scripture, that's not the way of Jesus. And so there's a lot of undoing that needs to happen there, but um, also real beauty on the other side of it in ways that that sort of energize the human being. You know, and we've seen that with people when they sort of let go of their hyper individualism. It's hard, but then they experience the beauty of Christian community and it energizes them uh, in brand new ways. So on that slowness, I think there's something really important here also for not just the you know, talking to folks who want answers, but also for those who are anxious to give answers. I think a lot of damage is done when folks, pastors, small group leaders, Christian friends who are just concerned for friends who may be asking difficult questions. And there is an anxiety that's provoked in you that you have to provide one right then and there that leads people to just give really bad ones or, or half-baked ones or um, actually, and this is something that you know, an embrace of the gospel and embrace of God's wisdom and the fact that God is always at work is helpful for you as someone who's trying to minister to others is taking to God your own anxieties about having the right answer in that moment or in that in that conversation. Like when I'm talking to college students at UCI, I mean, I have several, uh, you know, it's like, okay, we got an hour. That's cool. We don't have to get to everything and, and you're still cool to come and join. And you're not really signing on the dotted line. We don't have a dotted line for you to sign. But giving space for that and recognizing though, and this is also another very important thing with that anxiety is the way other people's doubts and anxieties and, and stories are actually probably provoking and raising some of your own. This is, I'm going to go Charles Taylor again, because everybody at TGC goes Charles Taylor. But the thing that he points out about the fact that everybody's faith is cross pressured, like everybody's doubts, uh, everybody's beliefs, everybody's, you know, remix of their faith. Or, or staunch confessionalism or whatever it is, it's all bumping up against each other. And somebody may be 
putting that energy out there really strong, like they're really deeply rooted in their confession, they're really deeply rooted in their in their anti-belief, they're really deeply rooted. And some of that, a, a decent amount of that's actually posturing to kind of prop yourself up in your, like you're, you're almost like hyping yourself up. Oh, I'm definitely not close to that, or I'm definitely not about to just walk back into my old Bible study. I'm definitely, so recognizing that your own anxiety might be playing a role and dealing with that and taking that to Jesus so that you don't actually do pastoral damage to others it, because you're actually trying to force somebody to land at an answer way too quick because you're really just trying to quell your own doubts. This is something you, you have to deal with. Otherwise, if you don't actually have that embraced and nailed down for yourself, you'll force other people to arrive too quickly and you're not helping them. You're helping yourself. I can see that, especially Derek, for people who are working with young adults, especially college pastors, because most college pastors, if they're in their 20s, don't have everything figured out. They don't have all their theology settled. And so they are themselves in flux as they're trying to guide younger people through this process. And you can see how a lot of damage results there. Karen, coming back to you, have you seen someone come through the deconstruction process with a stronger faith on the other side? And I'm hoping you have. And if so, um, what made the difference in that case? Yeah, and of course, this goes back to what do people mean by by deconstruction? And, um, and, and there are so many elements to it. And I, I really appreciate the way Derek laid out the different layers, um, because I think they, they all apply. And I have seen a lot. I, I mean, I, again, I've been, I've been teaching for a couple of decades. And I will say that, you know, I have seen far too many students deconstruct and not come back. And, and just generally speaking, for whatever this is worth, and it's anecdotal, but I've taught thousands of students in a conservative and evangelical environment, the ones that fall the hardest are the ones that were the most you know, adamant, conservative, secure, confident in those years when they came to college, and they really fall hard. But what I, ha- I have seen, actually, there's a student that I'm, I'm actually pretty close to, a former student, I'm pretty close to, and had her a number of times as a student, and have wa- watched her continue on with her life and marriage and children and, and all of those things. And she went through a particular kind of deconstruction, more of the stripping away of the cultural trappings, but that caused her to reconsider, you know, the, the doctrines and her, and her faith. And um, she seems to be in a very strong place. And I'm actually, you know, I, I threw the question out there on my social media as well, that which may have been a few foolish thing to do. But, you know, <laughs> I, 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 but these story, these stories are amazing. And I find, and I don't know if this, Derek, I think it was Derek mentioned before. Yeah, he just talked about how when we're hearing these stories, if we're honest and we are vibrant, our faith is not dead, we're asking questions of ourselves too, right? We're asking, you know, so when someone comes to me and says, do you do you think I'm still a Christian because I no longer vote this way? Or do you think I'm still a Christian because I believe, you know, that this teaching about women. Um, I mean, those are some easy ones, but I do have to confess that, you know, in the past few years, uh, there have been, I know this is not a new thing. I know that these things have been going on as long as, you know, well, as long as Christianity has existed and especially as long as Protestantism has existed because of the nature of it. In the past few years, there there are many cultural trappings that are being exposed. And yet at the same time, there are many Christians out there who would 
and do say that absent those cultural trappings, you are not a believer. And so, um, so as I see more and more people who are stripping away those cultural trappings, deconstructing those, and yet do dis- do affirm the Orthodox creeds and do show fruit in their lives, then. I'm asking myself as well, well, what are the cultural trappings that, that I've assumed all these years? And so to sum up my entire answer, I actually, having heard so many stories and so many variations of them, I'm ultimately right now hopeful and optimistic because of this deconstruction that's going on in, in, in a variety of ways. And, and because things do move so quickly, even some of the most dire and sad stories that we're hearing that seem the most hopeless things do move fast and i actually am confident that maybe you know the the pendulum will swing the other way and something new and good will come out of it and dare i say maybe even some kind of a a new 500 year moment reformation so i'm i'm hopeful and optimistic from the stories that i'm hearing about people deconstructing Glad to hear that, Karen. And Jay, this leads straight into the, my, my question for you, because in this book, we're, as I mentioned earlier, not trying to beat up on people and say, how dare you, not trying to shame people and say, you're supposed to put all these doubts or questions away. No, we're trying to, again, bring them to the surface and and try to to love one another and to help them through this process. And we also propose in the book that Maybe deconstruction is not the most helpful way to think about this, but in fact, we would invite all Christians to undertake a process of disenculturation. Jay, could you just explain a little bit of what disenculturation looks like and why it's necessary actually for all Christians to do? Uh, in the book, uh, Hunter Beaumont wrote a, a chapter about this and super helpful. Yeah, Christianity, like you know, all, all movements really uh, have... It has a particular language and customs and aesthetics and uh, norms um, that find their own sort of iterations throughout time and culture, you know. So I grew up uh, a child of the 90s evangelical youth group subculture. So I grew up going to acquire the fire conferences and listening to DC talks, Jesus freak on repeat, you know? And, uh, so there, there's a lot to it that, uh, for me, when I went through my own deconstruction phase, which I did, which several contributors to this book actually also went through. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, empathy there, you know, there certainly is for me and for, for so many of us who contributed to this book. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what it was, what sort of would probably have been labeled and maybe started out for me personally as deconstruction really ended up being in a much more precise way, disenculturation, where I was with the help of some guys who, who really continued to love me and care for me and pray for me and, and sort of nudge me toward Jesus again. Uh, I was meticulously going through and parsing out that which was a part of the 90s evangelical youth subculture, you know, that I grew up in, and that which was uh, the stuff of substance, you know, genuine, historic, orthodox Christianity. So for me, I mean, a way to think about it was it was essentially sort of doing the hard work of figuring out what is the stuff of substance here and what is the stuff of style. 
um, because the styles change and some of it is helpful for a time and then it becomes really unhelpful, even harmful. Some of it is just unhelpful and harmful from the outset. You know, as Karen was talking about some of the cultural trappings that uh, are so rampant these days, there's some of it that you look at and you just say, oh, this like, this is not some sort of thing that's helpful for a season and it's going to be dead and gone someday. There's some stuff that's just like, no, this isn't actually Christian. You know, this is, this is not the way of Jesus. It doesn't uh, fit within, again, beautiful, historic, orthodox Christianity. And, and I think, you know, um, when C.S. Lewis talks uh, about chronological snobbery, I mean, that's really helpful for me. I, it's hard to live outside of the time and space and moment that you live in. It's just really difficult. But one of the most beautiful things about Christian faith is that um, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We have 2,000 years of the church's history that should paint for us in very big, broad strokes uh, what it means to be a Christian. And then once we can identify those things, it becomes much more, not easy, but it becomes much more doable to disenculturate, to then say, okay, this is the stuff of faith that has been true since the beginning. And all of this other stuff that angers me, that frustrates me, that really wants me, it pulls at me to sort of push away from, uh, from the church or from other Christians or whatever, it becomes clear that we can sort of parse that stuff out. And that is hard work. You know, I think uh, one of the metaphors I use in my chapter in the book is the difference between hammers and chisels, you know? And I think with deconstruction so often, there's so much emotion laced uh, alongside it, which makes a lot of sense because like Derek said earlier, it's all shaped by our stories. So when you see a particular caricature, for example, of Christianity, and that caricature hits a particular note, like a minor note in the song of your life, the thing I want to do is grab a hammer and just smash the thing to bits. That's the temptation. But disenculturation is a much more meticulous and precise process. We, Rather than the hammer, we take the chisel um, so that we don't destroy the stuff of substance. We leave the remnants of true Christian, beautiful Orthodox faith uh, in place while doing the important work of meticulously, slowly, within community, chiseling away at all the excess uh, that doesn't need to be there and probably shouldn't be there. Um, and that differentiation, I, I think, is really important. And to Karen's point about her hope about the future, uh, I, I'm hopeful, too, because I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to see more and more people now um, leaning in that direction and pointing people in that direction. Hey, let's, let's parse this out a little bit more thoughtfully, uh, rather than deconstruct, you know, disenculturate genuine Christian faith from all the other stuff that we've attached to it. Uh, some of the most encouraging uh, stories that I've heard of deconstruction actually are coming from, um, my former students who have, who have left America to go and serve in other parts of the world. And that's where it becomes so much easier to see um, you know, the cultural things. And, you know, I, we shouldn't all have to do that physically or literally, although 
many of us should, but we that's perhaps one of the gifts of the digital age as well is that we are able to, you know, this global village allows us to see more expressions of Christianity that are not confined to our, our country or our region. Um, and so, or we could just read books too. That's my preference. Um, but <laughs> yes, just getting, being able to see beyond our own cultural moment and time and place. Yeah. I'll just say that there's, it, it's helpful to do that in, in terms of just having a global mindset of, of just even recognizing like it, that not to be crass, but oftentimes we shrink. We talk about abstractions about the church and we we're really talking about our youth group and we're really talking about the last two or three churches that we've been in. And, and that's re, there's enough of those. You string them together. There's a lot of failures, but yeah, you, you expand out the view and you just see a lot more of the, the glory alongside the, the ugly and, and church history is a lot of ugly and a lot of glory. Uh, that reminds you, like, it, it's actually, the whole thing is only justified by Christ anyways. And so you do have to reckon with that, but, but you get more of the, you get a, you get a fuller picture than, than just kind of being myopic about our, you know, North American experience. Well, Derek, you have one of the concluding chapters in the book, and I guess it's uh, sort of our anticipated Jesus juke chapter. Is that what you would say? I mean, what are, what are you trying to accomplish in that chapter? Yeah. I mean, the gist of it is this, if you're rethinking Christianity, if you're deconstructing, reconstructing, whatever it is, and really the thing is look at Jesus, right? He's the center. He's the point. Wrestle with him. And we need to wrestle with him on on his own terms, uh, right? Like what did, what did Jesus claim about himself? Who did he say he was? Was he the sinless son of man, the son of God who lived and died and rose again for you? If so, that changes the question of what we're doing, right? If so, then then wrestling with like, what did he say? Like, I'm wrestling with hell. I'm wrestling with scripture. I'm wrestling with men and women. I'm wrestling with all these things, these issues. So well, did Jesus have words on this? I'm not, I'm not talking about a canon with a, in a canon. Like I, I think Paul's inspired. I think the old Testament's inspired partially because of what Jesus said. But, but the thing is just, I see a lot of people wrestling with these things or talking about going through these process. And oftentimes it's easy to talk about Jesus and abstractions and not wrestle with like the actual flesh and blood person that we meet in the gospels who said real words about all sorts of subjects like money and politics. And, and so wrestling with like, is my problem with Christianity is my problem with Christ himself actually. And that, that changes the question. My big bet is that you can count on Jesus, right? Like Jesus is my bet. Jesus is my gambit. Jesus is, Jesus is good. He's better. He's holier. He's more beautiful. He's kinder. He's more gracious. He's more gentle. He's wiser um, than any of like the, the slick answers I might come up with. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to biff it. I'm even going to biff it probably in my presentation of Jesus because I'm still wrestling with him. Uh, and, and really, that, that's one of the images that I, I like with this whole process is, you know, uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel, Jacob wrestling with God until he gives him a blessing. And my thing is like, r- wrestle with Jesus. And, you know, you may end up with a little bit of a limp, you know, your idea of, of who God was you know, growing up. And uh, you, you, it may lead to some dislocation. Like you may dislocate churches. You may dislocate political ideologies. You may dislocate a lot of things, right? But you'll get a blessing, uh, because Jesus is the blessing. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is good. So look at him. Like if the church sucks, that's like your church. Sucks. That doesn't surprise me. Like Jesus does not though. 
And, and, and so like that, I'm not, I don't really care about you continuing to call yourself an evangelical, continuing to go to, you know, whatever church up the street that you were raised at. I mean, it'd be great if you could, but like, if it's a good one, I don't care about a lot of those things. My, my thing is like, are you hanging on to Jesus? If you hang on to Jesus, well, if Jesus, if you let Jesus hang on to you, everything else will sort itself out uh, long run. He will sort it out. And, and that's the thing I love, I love about Jesus is Jesus is extremely patient. Right. And that's, I think, something for pastors and for people walking with people to look at is you need to look at Jesus. Right. Have, have, has, has the Jesus you've been presenting actually part of the offense because you've muted the offense or you've added to the, like, added to, like, look at Jesus. Let him be your guide through this whole reconstruction process. Let him examine your heart. Let him ask difficult questions of yourself, of your own motives. Like, why am I going through this? What, what's going on? And, and, I don't mind. I'm repeating myself, but I, it's, it's hard once you get a preacher on a roll about Jesus, he really, it's, it, he's the good news. He's the whole point. And, and if not, like, who cares? Like, really, I, 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 I could not care less about any of the other questions. If Jesus isn't actually the risen son of God, like let's just pack it up and go home. Sounds straight out of first Corinthians 15. Probably it would be wise for us to end on that note, but Karen, I would like to give you last chance. Let's, Let's talk to parents whose children are walking through this process. Let's talk to pastors, young and old, church leaders in general, who I I expect this book will be picked up, especially by people who are trying to, they aren't deconstructing themselves necessarily, but they're trying to help somebody else who is either just to read it, to understand for themselves or to share it with that person at whatever stage they might, uh, they might be in. We'll speak to those leaders here on gospel bound. What one thing do you wish every church leader and parent knew about deconstruction? I wish that they knew how important it is to not only be open to, but actually encourage questions, um, to be explicit in, in saying and modeling the ability to ask the questions, to wrestle, uh, to come to someone with questions. And then, as, as Derek already said, to just to be fine with not knowing the answer or not being able to provide it right away. Um, just encourage explicitly the asking of questions and the wrestling of questions and don't even assume don't ever assume that those questions are not lurking in the back of a of a parishioners or young persons or students mind because they are yeah i think one way teachers can model this especially well is to anticipate those concerns ask them themselves in their preaching in their classroom teaching and answer them respectfully assume that people even as they might be nodding along might be right there on the spot, Googling something on their smartphone or scrolling through their Twitter feed and finding something else out there. It's it's a, it's pretty safe to assume, I'd say, in light of what Derek was talking about earlier, that we're in a cross-pressured environment and that all of us come to belief now through doubt. And so this is not so much a process that we find to be an aberration, but rather one that we expect to be increasingly normative, which is why in the book we're trying to recommend the process of disenculturation as necessary. My guests on Gospel Bound this week have been Karen Swallow Pryor, J.Y. Kim, and Derek Rishmaui, contributors to the Gospel Coalition's new book, Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church. You can pick it up at the Gospel Coalition's online store, store.thegospelcoalition.org. Thank you all for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold. Thank you.